You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in Revelation chapter 5. If you're new here, we've been working through the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, as it's quite often known. This is one of those books that is much neglected in the church, but I feel for such a time as this, we really need to be studying this book now. Last week we were in Revelation chapter 4. This was the throne room of God. We were privileged to see a glimpse into something that most people have never seen before, and this was the throne of the universe and the king upon his throne. And chapters 4 and 5 are pivotal to understanding the rest of the book. So, in Revelation 4, we saw the holiness of God emphasised. Do you remember those four living beings that were crying out, Holy, holy, holy are you, O Lord, and on and on. We saw that it was God who was eternal, and we saw that God was the creator of all things. And these are all aspects that just emphasise who this one sitting on the throne is, emphasise that he is the one who has the, the authority and the righteousness and the justice to reign and rule and also judge this world. And now in chapter 5, we're going to still be in the throne room, but the focus shifts to a new element within this throne room, and that is this little book or scroll that we see at the throne. Now, the fact that this little item gets such a significant place, Revelation chapter 5, if you don't know, is considered to be what they call the Holy of Holies of the New Testament, one of those chapters, because it shows us the Lamb of God up in the throne room just like Isaiah 53 is quite often considered the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. This is it. And one of the chief standout features of Revelation chapter 5 is this little scroll. So we're going to have to look at it in a little bit of depth, to be honest with you, because if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you may know that the rest of the book is about this scroll, these seven seals and these unfolding of everything that comes from this scroll. So we do need to understand it. And with that, we're going to have to go into the Old Testament. We're going to have to look at some background. I'm going to have to give you some context. And there's no way to sugarcoat it. This is going to get pretty deep. So I need you to all stay with me. I trust you. It'll be worth it. So let's read the first. Just We're going to do just five verses in Revelation today. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven scrolls. It says book here in my translation. The word in Greek is, it's referring to a scroll as as we would know it today, basically. The idea is it would look a little something like that. Most people assume, obviously, no one really knows it's an artist representation, but it was in the right hand. Now, if you know the Bible, you may be familiar that that phrase, the right hand, often comes up in the scriptures. It is the place that indicates strength, favor, power, authority. This is what it means to be at the right hand. Psalm 20, verse 6 says this, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. At the right hand of God is also where Jesus Christ is said to be seated. This is the place where he is awaiting until that day he comes to take back his kingdom. Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is the position of Jesus right now. 
the right hand of the Father waiting until he's given the okay to come back and redeem the earth. And that is, again, what we are going to be studying in the book of Revelation. That time of waiting will come to an end. However, it says there is a scroll, a book, written front and back with seven seals on it. So the question I want to look at is what is this scroll? What is this seal thing that we're seeing here in heaven? Why is it so important that when John saw there was no one worthy to open it, he wept uncontrollably? It's obviously important if this is the language. And as we shall see, this is a scene that is directly related to the subject of redemption, the redemption of mankind, of human beings of, from sin, but also the redemption of the earth. Because we know that sin did not just affect us and our relationship with God, it affected the whole of creation and the whole of nature. Those two things are very much in the picture in this passage here. Now, to help you understand this, we've got to have some Old Testament background. Often we don't understand the book of Revelation because we just don't do enough time in the Old Testament in some of these unusual passages in Leviticus and these books. We're going to do that today. We're going to talk about God's program of land redemption for Israel. This is one of the key themes you need to understand here. So much of Israel's history... Most of the Bible is what we would class as the Old Testament. That means it is regarding and the focus of it is Israel. So therefore, most of our lessons come from the nation of Israel. Revelation, remember I said in the introduction, is a thoroughly Jewish book. It draws on the Old Testament, over 500 allusions to the Old Testament in this book alone. So therefore, it makes no surprise that to understand it, we're going to be in the Old Testament a lot. Some of these things might sound a little strange to our ears. 21st century culture, as we read these old laws relating to ancient cultures, it's easy to just read them and attribute them to a past age that has nothing really to do with us. We do that at our own peril with the Word of God. Everything in the Word of God is there and is very significant. So there are a few principles I want us to grasp here as we go forward. When Israel came into the Promised Land, you remember the stories, Israel left Egypt and was taken through the wilderness and into the Promised Land, and there were 12 tribes of Israel. I hope everyone's familiar with the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what makes up the nation. Everyone knows Joseph and the famous stories of all. This is the story that's carrying on from there. When the tribes were large, they came into the land of Israel, and they were each allotted a different portion of the promised land as their inheritance. That's, that's the key thing I want you to get here. And these inheritance, this, inherit, this land inheritance, was allotted to these tribes and the Lord was very specific, it stayed in those tribes. The land was not to be transferred to different tribes or to people outside of the nation of Israel at all. And because he was so serious about that, he had a whole passage regulating laws about that land. I'm going to read it to you. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Leviticus 26. It's probably best you have this in front of you yourself. Leviticus 26, it's one of the first few books of the Bible. Leviticus 26, verses 23 to 28. These are the laws regulating the land allotments in Israel. So verse 23 says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. That's the Lord speaking there. The land is his. The land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me, and thus for every piece of your property you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. I want you to notice that, please. So verse 25, sorry. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes poor and he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, 
but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption. And then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property. Now what does that all mean, you're asking? So let me try and explain it to you. A few principles here. Firstly, the land belongs to God. That was, the main, that was the first thing he said. The land is mine, you are merely sojourners in it. So what that means is that the, God gave the land, the promised land is talking about Israel, to the Israelites under the principle of what we would call tenant possession. They were to merely be tenants. God was still the owner of that land. They were responsible to serve as his representatives and administer his rule in that land. And then you notice at the end, we have this little weird phrase about the year of Jubilee. That's, again, something very foreign in our mindset. We don't have a year of jubilee. What that basically meant, because he wanted each family and each tribe to keep their inheritance, if, say, for example, someone fell on hard times, the crops didn't grow, they were in debt or they needed the money, they could sell their land or some of their land to someone else. However, it was not to be a permanent sale because the land couldn't permanently change tribes, that's the thing. So God instituted that every 50th year in Israel was what was called a jubilee year. Okay, with me, I know it's a, it's a little unusual for us, but every 50th year. And on that 50th year, any land that had been sold or rented out for those purposes returned back to its original owner. Okay, so that means you could never permanently buy someone else's inheritance. The best you could get is a 50-year lease in our language. That's sort of how you'd think of it there, okay? And obviously that affected the value. If, there were, if it was the 40th year and there was only 10 years left on the lease, you wouldn't get so much money for it. If it was the first year after the 50, you'd get a lot more money for it. You see how that worked. It also got instituted that the land should not really be transferred between different tribes of Israel. So he was very keen on that. He also said, in the notice in the first verses, that you had to sell. If you did that with your land, it was always with the, the, the clause that they called the price of redemption. It always had this clause of redemption on it. So that means, let's say, for example, someone needed the money, they were desperate, they sold or rented out their land, and then the next year they ended up doing pretty well, and they said, no, we need to get that back. The clause of redemption meant that they could always go back, and if they had the money, they could buy that back immediately. They didn't have to wait until the Jubilee year if they, if they, if they had that. And you'll notice that it mentioned about a kinsman. A kinsman in our language, we would say a, a relative, basically, is, is that's what that means, a close family member. If they didn't have the money to buy it back and they wanted it back, a near relative, a family member, could come also to the person who'd purchased it and he was allowed to buy it back. The redemption price was usually worked out however many years were left, and that was how, that's how it's worked out what the man would pay. So you had this concept of a kinsman redeemer buying back the land for his relatives. And this is unusual to us, but it's very significant for this chapter in Revelation chapter 5 that we're looking at now. So, a few things about this kinsman redeemer. He would buy back the land on behalf of his family member but he was not obligated to give it back to his family member. He would then keep it until the Jubilee year. This benefited because 
ultimately they'd hopefully be friends and family and they'd be working together. He could use the land to, to provide rent or whatever, but it was still his, his land until that jubilee year. He could administer it as he saw fit. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, you'll, you'll find these principles coming up with Boaz and all these uh, different characters that you see. This is all about the year of jubilee and the kinsman redeemer. Now, we also see that a deed of purchase was written. When, a, when someone came and purchased land, a relative purchased land to get it back, a deed of purchase was written. This was a formal contract deed that was written usually on the front and the back, and it was signed and sealed as evidence that this had happened, that someone, that a relative had purchased the land back for the original owners. Now, we actually have an example of this happening in the scripture with Jeremiah the prophet that I want to just take a little excursion and look at now because it's very informative for us. Sorry. Now, the prophet Jeremiah, just as a historical aside, this is a recent, not too recent, but this is an archaeological discovery. This is, uh, this is the seal of Jeremiah the prophet's personal scribe. Right, one, of the, one of the main treasures that we find in Israel is these, loads of these little seals. So that on the bottom of this it says, Belonging to Berechahu, the son of Nerahu, the scribe. If you turn to Jeremiah 36 verse 4, you'll find this. It says, Then Jeremiah called Barak the son of Neriah, and Barak wrote on the scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. So we're about to actually see this particular man whose seal we still have archaeologically confirmed. I mean, that's pretty crazy. We also have seals for Isaiah the prophet. We have seals for King Hezekiah. Um, there's just many of these things in Israel right now, and they are amazing. That's just an aside. So in Jeremiah 32, though, that's actually where I want you to turn. We see this right of redemption, as it's called, this land possession actually happening. And stay with me here. This will become significant. Hopefully you'll see where I get to with this. So Jeremiah had been put in prison by the king of Israel, King Zedekiah. This was during the time when the nation Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, was starting to besiege Israel and they were on the verge of captivity. And verse 30, uh, chapter 32, verse 6, it says this, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anatoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. So one of his relatives comes to him and says, you're my relative, I need you to buy back my field for me. That's basically what he's saying, exactly what we've just read about in Leviticus. Verse 8, then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, buy my field, please. That is at Anatoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession and the redemption is yours, buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this word was of the Lord. Verse 10 says, I signed and sealed the deed. I called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase, purchase to Baruch, the son of Nira, the son of Mahasa, in the sight of Hanamael, my uncle's son, in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court. And it goes on to say that he told Jeremiah, instructed them to put this deed in a very safe place that it would last for a long time. We would read over that and we wouldn't think anything of it really if we were reading the Old Testament because it's just one of these peculiar, peculiar laws that we find for an ancient nation. Just have it in your head. Stay with me. So here we see that Jeremiah used the right of redemption that his cousin asked him to. He was a relative, he qualified to be that redeemer, he had that right, and he purchased this field. A deed was written, it was sealed, and it was placed somewhere safe. Now notice this. 
as the kinsman redeemer, he purchased the land, but he was unable to take possession of it at that time. Namely, he was in prison at the time. And secondly, the Babylonian Empire was about to take the land captive, so he didn't actually have the facility to do that. A foreign invader was in control of the land. He would have to wait to take possession until that usurper was either removed or had gone somewhere else. That will become very key. Now, a period of time passed from when he purchased the land until he was going to take possession. And it also said that once you've purchased the land, you are allowed to use force to evict people from your land. It's kind of similar to what we have in eviction laws all over the world ever since. But this is the idea that's going on here. There were two responsibilities that this relative, Jeremiah in this instance, would have. He had to be able to pay the purchase price, and thus he had to have the right and the power to be able to take possession of the land. Both of these things have to go together. If, if he simply came with an army and took over the land, he would just be no better than the Babylonians taking over the land. He would have no right, that would just be right makes right kind of thing. However, if he had purchased the land legally, it was his land and he then had to write to take possession of it. That's how it went. The two things go together. So that is the process of land redemption in Israel. Aren't you all glad you've learned that now? <laughs> now, remember, Israel is a microcosm of what happens in the world. Okay, that's why so much of the Bible is about Israel. It shows us these lessons. So just have that in your mind. I want to show you some parallels now to what we are reading and what we are going to read throughout the entire book of Revelation. Just as Israel belonged to God, they gave the land, the land was God's, it was Israel, he gave it to them, so the whole earth belongs to the Lord too. Psalm 24 verse 1, the, the earth is the Lord's and it, all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So not just the earth, the people too. Everyone on this earth who breathes is the Lord's. In, and I'm, I'm not saying they're the Lord's as in they are going to be saved, don't understand me. I'm just saying that as the creator, he is the source of all life in that sense. That is the Lord's. That is why the end of chapter 4, do you remember in the throne room, the elders proclaimed, for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. That theme is emphasized in the throne room of God. Another parallel, just as God gave tenant possession to Israel, he gave the earth to mankind as a whole. This is the story that we find in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. He gave the garden and the earth to Adam and Eve to tend before sin had entered this world. That was what was going on there. They were to be tenants. They, he gave them tenant possession of the earth. However, just as Israel lost tenant possession due to disobedience, this is the story of mankind too. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they fell. And thus we all inherit that nature where our relationship with God is broken. That is what we mean when we say the fall of man. That is what we're referring to. And then because of that, they forfeited their tenant possession and they handed it over to Satan. That is what has basically happened. Satan usurped that possession of the earth from its original tenant and he has been exercising administrative control ever since. We see this confirmed by the Lord. Luke chapter 4 verse 6, when Jesus is taken out to be tempted by the devil, the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I will give it to whomever I wish. 
John 12, verse 31, Jesus says this, Now judgment is upon this world, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And he's referring, of course, to the fact that there's someone who's usurped this world. Now, we know that because mankind forfeited this tenant possession in Genesis, that it actually affected the whole of creation. The whole earth became defiled, as in, because the regulations that God had ordered for this world to run properly were not being obeyed, things started to go wrong. The question that so many people ask, why is there death and suffering in this world? Why is there sickness? Why is there disease? Why is there war? Why is there murder? All of that can be traced back to this event because possession of the earth was handed over to someone who loved all those things and wanted to do all those things. They were not part of God's original creation. What we see now is not what it was. But what we're reading in Revelation is telling us how it will once again be what God intended. In fact, even more glorious than what we saw in Genesis. Romans chapter 8, Paul makes this very clear. He says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The creation itself will be set free from slavery to corruption. This is the idea that even the earth is groaning under this brokenness and sin because it's been mismanaged by someone who usurped it. It wasn't ever supposed to be like that. The land suffers and waits for the day in conjunction with the redemption of mankind when it will be released from this curse. Another parallel, just as the Israelites lost tenant possession of this inheritance, that loss was temporary. There were clauses put in that that would not be permanent. And so mankind's loss of the possession of the earth will also be temporary. That's what the book we're studying now is about. Just as he established a program of land redemption in Israel to stop land being permanently lost, so he established a program of redemption to ensure that the earth and mankind would not be permanently lost to Satan. That is what the cross is all about. We know a lot about the cross, but we never look at it in this light. The kinsman redeemer the relative who had the right of redemption. He could redeem property in Israel, just like Jeremiah did, we saw there. Just like that, God also established a system whereby a relative of mankind, of Adam, could redeem both mankind and have the tenant possession of the earth given back to the rightful owner. You see, this is why it's so important that Jesus Christ had to be truly human. This is why we have this unusual belief in Christianity that God became incarnate as a human. And we don't say that Jesus was just a good man. We say he was, he was God, but also truly human too. This is the reason why he had to be a relative in order to have the right of redemption to purchase back the earth. So this, this is massive, deep theology. You'll understand the whole Bible like this. I'm just trying to give you a small flavor of it. It really is quite amazing when you, when you grasp this. He established a system that would mean he could buy back the right of the earth in that sense. This is why when you come to the Gospels, you go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 3, we have a, a genealogy. Again, we read over genealogies, they seem so boring. So-and-so was the son of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. They are there to show. In Luke, it'll trace it all the way back to Adam. And this is the concept why he's doing that. He's, he's highlighting these elements here. When Christ returns at his second coming, Yes, he's coming as a king, but he's also coming as a kinsman redeemer. He's coming as that near relative to reclaim tenant possession of the earth and to evict those who usurp his possession. That is what Revelation really is, if you wanted me to sum it up for you. This is why what Adam lost, 
Jesus will reclaim. This is why Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, because he is taking back what Adam lost when he gave it over to Satan. He had to pay the redemption price, though. We saw that was one of the rules. The, the, the guy who could redeem the earth had to pay the price for it. Just as the Israelite had to pay the value to get the inheritance back, so Christ, the ultimate kinsman redeemer of mankind, had to pay a redemption price not only for the earth but also for all those who dwell in the earth too. The two are very much connected. And what was that price? 1 Peter 1.18 For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb blemished without defect. The redemption price that he paid was nothing less than his own life that he gave. That's how much he wanted to redeem back the earth for these people, for us. Now, however, just like the Israelite kinsman redeemer, he didn't give the land right back straight away. You notice that. He, he made the purchase. That was 2,000 years ago now. And the land is still being usurped in many ways. As the kinsman redeemer, as the last Adam, he will rule the earth and administer it for God's purposes. But that's coming. Zechariah 14.9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name will be only one. One day he will hand it back to the Father, as a kinsman redeemer should. 1 Corinthians 15, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. That's what this is talking about. Understand this in relation to this concept. Unusual Old Testament concept. Now, let's just tie this up. What had to be done? After, after a purchase was paid, after a redeemer had paid this thing, you had to sign a deed of purchase. A scroll had to be made. And in light of all the parallels, I'm arguing here that the scroll that we are seeing in the right hand of the Father is in fact the purchase price. It is the, basically the title deed to the earth. That is what we're seeing here. In light of all of these things, it is quite literally the title deed to the earth. As in Jeremiah's situation, a deed was produced when the redemption price was sold. As in Jeremiah's case, it wasn't reclaimed immediately, so the scroll had to be put somewhere very secure until it was needed to prove ownership of the earth. Where was that scroll placed? The right hand of God the Father, the most secure place we can. And that was 2,000 years we've been waiting. Just as foreign squatters, the Babylonians, controlled Israel while Jeremiah and the Jews were taken out of the land, so foreign squatters, Satan, and all those who follow him are controlling the world system during the years that Christ has been removed from the earth. However, at the time of his choosing, he can exercise his right to take back possession and evict those who are illegally squatting in his land, if we put that into our language. That is, that is the idea of what is going on here. This is what the book of Revelation is. The book of Revelation is the eviction notice for all those who are illegally squatting on God's earth. And he has been patient. He has been patient. His church has been working, telling people, it's going to come. The Lord wants to offer you mercy. He wants to offer you forgiveness. He does not want you to be there when he has to come and evict those who continually, stubbornly repent and refuse to acknowledge that he is Lord. But we are going to read about that period of history. That is what we have. So this is basically the book of Revelation. It was not theirs. Those who are illegally squatting in the land, it was not theirs. They never paid for it. Only Jesus. Only the kinsman redeemer had that right to pay the price of redemption. Only Jesus paid it. 
That is the answer. This is exactly what Jesus did. And this is why we find these specific titles now being used in this, next, this chapter that we're looking at. Look at verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So now, hopefully, with that background, you can just get a little bit of the flavor to understand what is going on here. A strong angel. This was someone who was obviously very mighty, but he says, no strong angel, no saint of old, not Moses, not Peter, not Paul, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not any of these other figures that people elevate was worthy. No one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. No category of created being could ever be worthy to open that scroll. No one born of Adam. Everyone born of Adam is lost, sinful, fallen. Without the redemption of Jesus Christ, they don't stand a chance. They are unable to bring about their own redemption. And for me, this again answers that question that so many people in this world have. Why Jesus and why Christianity? Notice, you may notice, most, if not, I would say, all other religious systems, whether they are claimed to be monotheistic, that means a one-God system, whether they claim to be more in the Eastern spirituality mindset, all is God, whether they're just one of these corruptions of Christianity, they all teach at some point that men bring about their own redemption, either by deeds, by good works, either by a process of reaching enlightenment, whatever it may be. Ultimately, it rests on the person to do what is required, and that is always the fundamental opposite of Christianity, because the one who could do what was required was the one who was worthy to open the scroll, the one who paid the purchase price for this world and for all the people in it. That is Jesus Christ. So it's only him. And this is why when John sees the scroll and he thinks no one's worthy to open it, he begins to weep. And that the word in Greek is a very strong. He's weeping uncontrollably here. He wants, and why is he weeping? Let's just ask that. He wants to see an end to sin in this world. He wants to see a time when he's not exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He wants to see a time where Christians are not being killed by the Roman Empire. He wants to see an end to the death, the suffering, the brokenness, everything that happened when tenant possession was taken from man due to disobedience and Satan grabbed the reins on that one. We can appreciate what he felt there with that weeping. We look around in the world today. We see atrocities. We see things happening that should not be happening. We see injustice. More and more, it seems now, that we're seeing these things happen around the world. We want a world where people don't fight and kill, where they don't murder, they don't destroy, they don't abuse one another. This is the reality of the heavenly vision. This is the world that God is getting us to. The problem is, we're the ones who are actually causing a lot of the problem because we refuse to obey his laws and we refuse to come to him that we may find grace and mercy. This is what it is. This is the mission of the church. This is why there's been such a long period from when he purchased the land and the earth and the people till, until he's reclaiming it. Because during that period, he didn't leave us on our own. He set up his church to tell the world that this is going to happen and this is the message and God wants you to be with him. That is the purpose of the church. That is what we're doing here. So this is it. Many people have tried to set up their own kingdoms. I've talked about this before. Many people have a vision of utopia that they want to try and get on this world. Powerful men, intelligent men, men controlling vast armies and vast empires, and they've all failed. And they've failed miserably. And that will be the case. There's going to be one more figure who will be basically Satan's last stand on this earth to set up his own kingdom. We're going to read about that in Revelation. And then we're going to see Christ come 
and evict all who do not bow to him at this time. Look at verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. We have this, and then comes the answer we're all waiting for. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Mankind was not left to do things on our own. The very one who entered history 2,000 years ago is the same one who fulfills all those requirements to bring redemption to man and to earth. He is the one that paid the purchase price. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. These titles are very significant. That, that term actually comes from a prophecy in Genesis 49 that Jacob prophesied over the tribe of Judah back all those years ago. But notice, a tribe of Judah, this is referring to Israel, this is showing clearly that he was related to mankind. He was a tri- from the tribe of Judah. He was also from the root of David. This is again another prophecy. If you, these terms mean nothing to you unless we understand the Old Testament. The root of David is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Let me read it to you. It says, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, and his resting place will be glorious. Now, it says the root of Jesse there. Who was Jesse? He was David's father. It's basically saying the same thing, the root of David, the root of Jesse. He was David's father, telling you that he would be the one one day that all people would come to. These two names are representative of two prophecies that talk of the future Messiah, the kinsman redeemer, who will one day rule. He will be the kinsman redeemer, and the right to be king came from David. So that's why it's important that he's the root of David. That was the kingly line. King David had the promise. This is why when we read the Gospels, notice how often it will refer to Christ, son of David, from the tribe of Judah. This is, in fact, how the very New Testament starts. The New Testament, the first book, Matthew, starts like this. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Those two people being emphasized, David and Judah. And then right at the end it says, Jacob was the father, this is a different Jacob, of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. You see, it proves that he was the near relative. This is why God had to become man. This is why Jesus is everything. This is why no one can compete. He is qualified to be the kinsman redeemer. He is the near relative who paid the price of redemption. He did this 2,000 years ago when he came to this earth as the Lamb of God. We'll see the Lamb of God emphasized in the next verse next week. He died for the sins of the world. He purchased redemption. And at that moment, the deed of purchase was written and it was placed in the hand of God the Father until that time when he decides he wants his kingdom territory back and he unrolls the scroll and he will evict those who are usurping his kingdom and he will take his rightful place on the throne of David as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as the root of David. That is the story of the Bible. And that's the story we're all part of too. And many of you probably don't know your place in that story. Your place in that story really is with Jesus Christ. There's no other place you would want to be. That's going to become very apparent as we go through this book. He says, stop weeping. Stop weeping. No one else was worthy, but there is one who has overcome, and there can only be one. And remember the promises to the church in the first three chapters that we study. What does he say to the church? To him who overcomes. What's he getting at there? 
When you become a member of the body of Jesus Christ, you are placed in Jesus Christ. And thus you become one with him in that sense. He is the head, we are the body. He overcomes, thus we overcome, because he did everything. That's it. He stands at the very centre and fulfilment of all things. This is Jesus, this is the King, this is the one who is worthy, and it's the one who we worship. Amen? You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.